Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this week's episode of Graphic Policy Radio. This the live show for comic geeks who also care about which comic President Obama made his first appearance. We have a special episode this week with guest Jamal Engel, and it's continuing our month of awesome interviews. Um, he's the creator of a kick-ass new series, Molly Danger, which is being published by Action Lab. Uh, Action Lab gave us our first taste of this um, new series on Free Comic Book Day, which uh, was an awesome two-for comic that had Molly Danger and Princess as well. For those who missed it on a Free Comic Book Day, you can go to graphicpolicy.com right now and read the comic and check out why we wanted Jamal on the series and why we're looking forward to this. Um, as always... I'm joined by the brilliant Alana. How you doing? Hello, hello. Um, and I think Jamal just called in, so let's get him on because we have a lot to talk about. Jamal, is that you? Yeah, that's me. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, so you're on the air with myself and Alana. <laughs> Hi. Um, so yeah, I mean we, uh, you know, we kind of gone back and forth on email. Um, you know, setting this up is I uh, I really wanted you on the on the radio show because of Molly Danger. Um, I supported it when it was a Kickstarter project, and I'm you know, staring at my Molly Danger um, card membership card uh, sitting on my shelf right now. So it's really cool to have you on. Um, it's a really cool series. So psyched to have you here. Thank um, you, thank you to both Ed for being a backer. I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, so this is going to be, it should be fun. Um, I'm hoping to talk about, you know, your history of getting into the business because you actually have a, a fascinating one um, that you've been involved really, really a uh, long time and got involved at a young age in Kickstarter and Molly Danger and Action Lab and all that stuff. Um, so I guess starting off is, um, you know, how you got involved in the comic industry. And I was kind of doing some research and it said you start off as an intern, which I thought was fascinating at the age of 14. Um which well, I wasn't on... fourteen. I, I, I wasn't fourteen. I was seventeen. Seventeen. Okay. Um, so, how did you get the the internship and you know go on from there to where you are now? Um, well, basically, how it worked is I I grew up in New York City, and at the time, I don't know if it still exists, but at the time they had a program called the Executive Internship Program through this uh, this. Uh, program called City of Schools. So they would set up six-month internships for uh, juniors and seniors in high school. And basically, you know, pretty much a lot of Fortune 500 companies, you know, comic book companies, you know, what have you, hospitals, what have you, whatever your area of interest was, they tried to find a compatible internship for you. They would set you up with interviews. You'd have to go interview, you know, the, the, the whole process. It's, yeah, you know, but because it was a high school program rather than a college program, you weren't getting college credit. But at the same time, you basically spent four days out of the week at the company, and then Fridays you would report to school. So that's, that's actually really cool. Very smart. I mean, I, I my day job is working in politics, and I actually started when I was seventeen as well through an internship. It was one where I had an opportunity for summer to to. Um, try it out and see if I liked it, and, like, that's where I got the bug. I was like, okay, this is definitely what I want to do. So um, hearing someone else kind of, you know, kicking off their career through something similar, is, it's really cool. Um, and for folks who, you know, are thinking about what they want to do in the future, I, like, highly recommend it. 
Um, so how did you go from the internship to where you are today? Well, uh, the the internship, I, like I said, I did a six-month internship at DC Comics, and that was my, my first taste of working in the industry. And after I graduated from high school, I went to college, I went to college for two years. I dropped out because I was bored. <laughs> well, I was bored. I ran out of money. I'd already, at that point in my life, I'd already had like you know 14 years of art training. So, you know, I had started taking art classes probably from like the first grade hour even before. And then, you know, by junior high school and high school level, I was always in, you know, advanced and specialized art programs and computer programs and, you know, television production and stuff like that. So I went to Canada for six months, moved back to New York City, lost and lithless, and then I decided that I was going to take my art career seriously. And I had been working at a couple of comic shops. I worked at Jim Haley's Universe and Forbidden Planet and, you know, a couple of different places. And then I decided I was going to, Put the, finally put together a portfolio and start going to the conventions. So I went to a couple of conventions. The first convention, is, I I wasn't a convention guy. Like, I was a comic book guy. You know, you'd think, you know, being into comic books and living in New York City, you'd go to a lot of conventions. But I only went to one convention when I was a teenager, and that was the, the, I, the first convention I ever went to. I met Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire. And then this is when they were still doing Justice League. And then I got to know them a little better uh, when I was doing my internship at D.C. And then afterwards, so I'm, I go to a couple of conventions. I meet Larry Strom at one convention. I meet uh, a couple of other people, you know, cool people, Dave Johnson, Tully Hamner. You know, they were just getting into the business at that point. Uh their convention that I went to was a show in New York. It was a great Eastern convention at the uh, the Javits Center. This used to be the, the big, massive comic book, East, book, East Coast comic book convention before uh, New York Comic Con and uh, C2E2 sort of took their place. It was really kind of sad, actually, because they... The the guy who who used to run those shows was a guy named Fred Greenberger, and he was sort of like the the comic book capo for a long time. <laughs> like <laughs> it was like between him and the creation conventions, like these were the guys that ran geekdom on the East Coast. So, <laughs> so but he. The the last show that he tried to do, he ended up not filing because they moved from the from uh, the Javits Center to the what was the York Coliseum, and they never filed a, uh, a a floor plan with the fire department with the fire marshal's office, so the show got shut down and they just never recovered because of it. But anyway, that's that's a, that's a tangent. But anyway, it was a golden time of comics. Yeah, exactly. That's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> I miss the so, whole show that were totally chaotic. Oh, I remember. Not to get too too far off of the tangent with conventions, but I remember back. You know, there was a a couple of shows where nobody knew what was going on. 
The guests didn't know what was going on. The promoter didn't know what was going on. It was it was anarchy. It was absolute chaos. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody set fire to the place. Nobody would even notice. So, so I I got to this convention at, at the Javits Center, and I got I had gone to a comic shop like maybe a week or so before. And I'd seen a copy of Comic Shop News, and on the cover was an image of Static, because right about that time, Milestone was just starting to launch. They had, none of their books had come out yet. They were just like starting to do their, their media push. So I saw this image of Static, and decided to do some samples based off of it. So I've got these samples, like four pages of samples from Static. No script, just... Stuff that I made up out of my head. And I go to this convention, and I see the Milestone booth. So I walk over to the Milestone booth, and there's this guy sitting there. And I, you know, meek and shy as I was at the time, I, I go, I walk up to him and I say, excuse me, sir, is there anybody doing portfolio reviews? And he turns around, and he stands up, and he towers over me. And that was Dwayne McDuffie. Wow. So I so I I give him my portfolio and he starts flipping through it and he gets to the static pages and he's like, Where did you see this? I said, On the copy of Comic Shop News. And he looks at me and he goes so you figured out that his powers were electromagnetic based on a cover image? I said, yeah, it just seemed natural. <laughs> it's like, nice job. <laughs> so I showed those pages to a couple of other smaller companies, and I walked out of there with work. Wow. So you know, that, that was... Uh, that was how I broke in. How I I've stayed in for so long is a completely different story. <laughs> so, so we finally have we have proof that you know doing sample pages and going up to uh, publishers at conventions actually pays off. Uh, it, it did then. I don't know how. I I you know I have people coming up to me and asking me how do I break into comics, and my usual answer these days is hell if I know. <laughs> because when I got into the art side almost 20 years ago now, you you used to be able to send samples. In our regular, I used to, I, I once, back in 1999, I basically decided that I was going to be as big a pest as I possibly could. And I did a new set of samples every week for a month and a half, and just mailed it to every editor that I knew. Wow. And some that I didn't know. And I and I just made, I was just persistent. Really, just really, really diligent and really, really persistent. You know, while I had, a, um, I, at the time I had like a break in my schedule, because I, I was doing you know, little indie things and working odd jobs and not making a whole lot of money, but I decided I was just going to take that chance and do it. But you could do that in those days. Nowadays, I think it's a little easier because you've, you've got like a DeviantArt page or a blog or something you could, you know, 
the Senate Inquirer email and attach your work to that. Yeah, which yeah you know, certainly saves down on the postage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I f- I feel like I got to qu- ask this question for everyone who comes on. Um, so you said that you worked at a comic shop. Um, and clearly, mm-hmm. we were reading comics back in the day. Like, what did you read growing up? I was the, I was probably all. I mean, I've always been a huge DC fan, and I was just obsessed with Superman as a character. For, and still am, you know, Superman's my, my all-time favorite character. And it's kind of funny because I, I had this friend growing up, Junior, who was a huge Marvel fan and loved the X-Men. I couldn't stand the X-Men. And it yeah, always came down to the, the, the classic fight of who's better, the Justice League or the X-Men. <laughs> Can I ask, why didn't you like the X-Men? What was it that just turned you off when you were younger? Well, it was hard to articulate at the time. I've actually gotten really better at articulating it, I, although I am really enjoying what they're doing with the X-Men books right now. But I think it was just sort of the this, the conceit of the X-Men. Like, I know that, you know, people like to use them as an allegory for race relations in the country. But here's the problem. With the exception of Nightcrawler and the Beast... And even, like, some of the newer characters, they're pretty. Yeah. They're all pretty. You know, yeah. back in the 80s, the only thing that made them unusual was the fact that, you know, Rogue had to wear a full body stocking all the time. And even Nightcrawler, who was considered the ugly X-Men, was still pretty and had a girlfriend and was constantly being hit on by women. So it wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't yeah, yeah. that huge. It, it just, it never, it was that, that was part of it. The other part of it was something that I, and to this day, I don't get, which is the only difference between being a member of the X-Men and being any other superpowered character in the Marvel Universe is branding. You wear a giant X on the costume. Of course, everybody's going to know you're a mutant. You're obviously an X-Men. You've got a giant X in the costume. So you're a mutant, so we're going to hate you. The only difference between Angel and Spider-Man is Spider-Man constantly goes around telling people, oh, no, I'm not a mutant. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. That's how I got my powers. You know, Angel could have said, oh, no, I'm not a mutant. I was bitten by a radioactive pigeon. <laughs> so it, it, it just never it just never made sense to me. <laughs> I always thought the X's were a target. That that was like the one part of their costume for as little as they wore most of the time that was armored and actually could deflect. It was like no aim here. Um, oh, I absolutely agree. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's like Robin. It's like the old joke with Robin. Here you have this brooding guy in gray and blue, and suddenly I'm going to throw a kid in red, yellow, and green and have him draw all the fire. I mean, attention. <laughs> uh, so since you're a Superman fan, like, who would you consider your favorite writer or artist on Superman? Oh. If you're willing to go with that. Oh. 
How about I'll change it? For someone who's not a Superman fan, what would you recommend that they check out? For someone who is not a Superman fan, if you... Let's see. There's a lot of stuff. There's Superman Secret Identity by Kurt Busiek and Stuart Immerman, which isn't a traditional Superman story. It's it's a more grounded, you know, sort of what if Superman were a real person story. And I think if you get the, the concept of Superman as a character from that story, they do a really good job with that. And there's other stuff. There's, there's you know, Superman for All Seasons by Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb. There's you know, even if you want to go more straight traditional Superman of like the more recent stuff, if you pick up, you know, the any of the action comic stuff that Jeff Johns did when he was on the book, or you know, you even go old go older, you know. Is Man of Steel is the Man of Steel miniseries still in print? You know, is it still a trade in print? Probably. I don't know. But you know, but that's but that's to me that I don't have a favorite because different creative teams have affected me in different ways. Like, I, I loved when Dan Jurgens was writing and drawing the book, but I also love when Stuart Immerman was writing and drawing the book. You know, it, it's, it's, you know it, there, I get, there's different things that I get out of different Superman eras. You know, I, when I got into Superman initially, Kurt Swan was the artist, and then Byrne became the, became the, the driving force creatively, and then Marv Wolfman became the writer, and Jerry Ordway was the artist, and you know I was reading all that stuff, and you know there's just there's a lot, <laughs> but, but for like the base like if you want to if you want to introduce somebody to Superman as a concept, I think that something like Superman for All Seasons is a is a good place to start. Alright, fair enough. Um, so Molly Danger. Um, okay. Definitely want to talk. I mean, we could we could go back to the other stuff, but I want to make sure to get in like the project you want to plug or we want you to plug and talk about okay. and, and get the awesomeness out there. Um, so like 300 foot, 500 foot level, uh, describe Molly Danger for folks who might not know. Okay, Molly Danger is a 10-year-old superhero who's been 10 years old for the last 20 years. She's Smart, strong, and brave, and possibly immortal. Or at least that's what they tell her. She has been the protector of a small city in upstate New York called Coopersville. She has been protecting it from a team of cyborg supervillains known as the Supermechs. And the Supermechs are unusually focused on her and on Coopersville for some reason that nobody can figure out. But Molly is also a very lonely little girl. I, I think of her as a princess in an ivory tower because she doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have any family. The only family that she remembers apparently died when they crash-landed on Earth. And the organization that she... Hmm? That's what they tell her. Oh, I see. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) That's what what everybody's been told for the last 20 years is that she's an alien, that she and her family are part of an expedition that whose ship was actually accidentally sent off course and landed in the in the most remote part of the galaxy possible, the planet Earth. That she went into a coma, and when she awoke a year later, she had superpowers. Okay, uh, so where? <laughs> 
where does the concept come from? Well, initially, it was an animation pitch. Um, my friend Richmond Rizzio and I were driving back from uh, Pittsburgh Comic Con. This was 2001. And we were bouncing ideas back and forth between each other about trying, because I had just moved back from California. I had been working in animation. Uh, we were thinking about, you know, what we could pitch to, you know, Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or something. Just, you know, you know what kind of what kind of project could we pitch? And we were looking at stuff like Kim Possible and Atomic Betty and The Life and Times of Juniper Lee, and we definitely wanted to do something that was female centric. And we were bouncing ideas back and forth, and a name popped into my head, Molly Danger. And at first, we, you know, Rich was like, you know, maybe we should make her older, maybe we make her 16 or something along that line. But like, no, she has to be a kid, she has to be young. You know, she has to have superpowers. Uh, the original... The initial concept was a lot more complicated in a lot of ways. We we were it was more akin to like through the looking glass or Amethyst Princess of Gem World, where she was traveling back and forth between dimensions and you didn't know which life was the real life. You know, if her civilian life was a real life or her life as Molly Danger was real, and we we started working on it. I did character designs. I started to write a Bible for it. I wrote a first issue script. Um, after we decided that, you know, we couldn't do it as an animated animated project because, you know, we didn't know anybody in animation. <laughs> and you know, we you know, Rich had a uh an independent uh publishing company at the time called Airwave Comics. So we decided that we were going to do Molly Danger as a comic book, or at least as a one-shot. So I wrote a script. We drew an ad, which appeared on the back, because at the time, Rich also had the license for I Dream a Genie as a comic. So we put it on the back of a copy of, uh, of, I, Dream, of an I Dream a Genie comic book that came out in 2000, yeah, 2002, like 2001-2002. And... What ended up happening was I started working on it. I drew a few pages, and then I started getting paying work. And then I just started getting busier and busier and busier, and it just made it harder for me to work on it personally. So I already had the script. I already had the layouts. We tried to hire another artist, Jamal Peppers. Jamal did a few pages. Then he couldn't do it anymore. Which you know was realistic because we couldn't afford to pay him at the time, so we ended up you know putting it on the shelf for a very long time, and I would come revisit the idea every once in a while, tweaking things here and there, tweaking ideas here and there, you know putting it away for a while, and then I would kept getting busier and busier and busier, and next thing you know, I'm at d c and I'm signing a contract, and then seven years go by. Wow. So, <laughs> so you know, between 
2000, basically between 2000, I would say 2003, when I really started getting busy, and then I did venture over at Image, and then I was doing fill-ins over at DC and Marvel and Image and what have you, and then I started, I did uh, a couple of uh, graphic albums for a French publisher called Le Humanoid Associé, and then I went to DC, so between 2003 and 2012, I just ended up being really, really busy all the time. <laughs> so when my contract was up, actually I have to backtrack a little bit. I was approached in 2010, I was approached by a, a mainstream publisher and they'd asked me if I had any ideas for an all-ages superhero series. And at first I was sort of racking my brain, you know, maybe I should come up with a new idea, maybe I can, you know, go through the old notebooks, see if there's something there that I could, I could build on. But then it hit me. Molly Danger. Molly Danger's already, already set up. So I went and found my old notes and the script and everything, and I was just looking at it going, you know what, this is much too complicated. This is more than it needs to be. We need to really pare it down to a single idea, which is she is Molly Danger. She has always been Molly Danger, and that's the only thing that she knows about herself. And I just started building from there. So I pitched it. It never went anywhere. I took it to tour. I took it to Random House. No responses. I tried to get uh, a literary agent involved, and she looked at it and said, this is wonderful. This is a great superhero superhero comic. I don't know where to take it because all the publishers that she knew were looking for versions of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which is Aww. not what Molly Danger is at all. Yeah. So, when my contract at DC ran out, and I was literally sitting in my studio where I'm sitting right now, and I just had this thought in my head. You know, I did everything that I said that I wanted to do while I was at DC. I had a lot of success there. I, you know, got to draw Superman. Hello. At this point in my career, what do I do next? And that's when the whole Kickstarter thing came in. I, I'd gotten approached by another writer about doing a project with him and raising the funds through Kickstarter. And at that time, I had never even heard of Kickstarter. But I went and looked at the website. I investigated. I started looking at the crowd, crowdfunding as a concept. And I said, you know what? I should just do this myself. I don't need to team up with somebody else. I'm, you know, perfectly capable of writing and drawing a project on my own and really just putting everything into it. So that's when I, you know, started putting together a Kickstarter campaign. And it took about six months, honestly, from the time that I started looking at the Kickstarter for me to really put all the the pieces together for the campaign before I launched. So. That's, that's how we get here. <laughs> wow, like that's, that was going to be one of my questions down the road, was like how much work and planning does a Kickstarter campaign like really, 
you know, goes into it. Because, I mean, six months is not something I would ever guess. Um, well, it, it, it was for me. You know, it, you know, a lot of it, I really feel that to run a successful Kickstarter campaign, you have to approach it the way that you would approach any other marketing project. And, you know, you have to you have to sell the concept, you know, especially at the time because I only had, like, a few pencil pages and some character designs and, you know, the basic, the, the, the basic plot to tell, to tell people. So you have to be able, you know, I had to be able to not just show people the idea, which I thought was the, the strongest of the ideas that, you know, that I've been playing with recently, but you know i'm not i'm also selling myself as a creator but i'm also you know i also wanted people to to know how sincere i was about doing this you know how you know how important this how close this project is to me and how much it means to me and you know i and i asked questions from people you know friends of mine who had already done kickstarters you know I you know I have my my little circle of 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 Kickstarter you know successful Kickstarter people and I I looked at what you know campaigns succeeded what campaigns failed why they failed what the successful campaign did that the other campaigns didn't do you know it I you know in my video I filmed four versions of that video because the first two just came off. I was reading off of cue cards, and it looked like I was reading off of cue cards. It, you know, it, it just I just decided that the best thing that I could do was just to sit down in front of the camera and just talk. So that's what I did. I I just I just talked for probably four hours <laughs> while while I was putting together the video, and then the, you know having to edit everything and make sure that you know all the the components were there because I was putting this whole campaign together by myself. With the with the forty-five. Uh, what's interesting to me also is just that you're a creator who had a a track record, you know, as an artist, um, but you didn't seem to have like you're not one of those internet celebrity types who had had a very active, you know, Tumblr following. I mean, maybe I'm wrong with this, but maybe had had a, you know an active Tumblr following and a lot happening mm. on Twitter etc before you went on to Kickstarter so it's sort of a a flip for you because you're someone who had been known in the industry but who maybe hadn't been doing as much online and I'm curious you know like you had to shift from being just an artist to also being a, a brand online right and and exactly. what was that like for you to do well I I had been doing it a little bit but. I, I will be the first to admit that I am a late adapter <laughs> when it comes to the, the internet. You know, I and not from lack of want, just more from general ignorance. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm I'm the guy who finds out that that you know you know a band that I like is selling tickets, like, but you know they're already sold out. By the time I see the ad, so I'm really just sort of bad in, in that regard. Um, but I had already had kind of you know my Facebook page. I like you know managing like three Facebook pages, and you know I was I you know on Twitter a little bit. 
But, you know, you, you also have to keep in mind that while I was running the campaign, you know, and even before, like, prepping the campaign, I was still, you know, knee-deep in, you know, working on Kiss for IDW and doing Smallville for DC and, you know, do working on, you know, putting together a campaign and, you know, and, you know, got a family, you know, got, you know, a young daughter and a wife and, you know, need to spend some time with them, you know, and... I, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's like I've only, you know, for example, like I've only been on D, on a DeviantArt for a couple of years, and DeviantArt's been around forever. Yeah, I, it, it sometimes it takes me, it takes somebody else pushing me to do something. You know, I'm, I'm not the, you know, again, you know, Kickstarter had been around for like, at that point, like three years. And I'd never even heard of it. So, I'm <laughs> but you know, I'm trying to get better about it. It's, it's very, it's very difficult because it's a lot to manage. The social media aspect of it is, a, it really is a lot to manage. And you know, even doing the campaign, I've actually gotten a lot better at it than I was before. Mm-hmm. I think for folks who want to. <laughs> Who are trying to start this uh, endeavor on, on themselves at this point? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you, you broke up a little bit. Oh no, it's okay. I'm sorry, Brett. What were you going to say? So I was going to say. So I mean, what's interesting when you're talking about the social networking and having to manage all that was all that was kind of coming into fruition as you were working for DC and doing kind of what I'll say like the big publisher stuff. Um, did they ever? I'm kind of fascinated to see, like, what publishers, how they talk to their talent and ask them to engage on that sort of stuff. Like, is anyone, did anyone at any point at, like, DC or anyone was like, hey, you know, a great way to engage your fans is through Twitter or Facebook. You guys should look into this. Was there, like, any oh, mandate? No. Or? no, no, not at all. You have to keep in mind that a company like DC really, it's not, they're not concerned with promoting the the rank and file of their talent pool. You know, if somebody breaks out like a Jeff Johns or a Jim Lee, that's fine. They will take the ball and run with it and, you know, and try to make them the biggest things in sliced bread. But they're not as concerned with promoting all of their artists. So it's really up to you as an individual to sort of push yourself in that way. And again, you know, that was... Uh, something that I kind of put to the side only because I was all of the, you know I was more concerned about doing the work. Yeah. You know, and uh, I uh, for a very long time I was just sort of like, well, you know, let the work speak for itself. You know, you don't really have to go around, you know, posting it everywhere or you know. And then I've come to realize that yes, you do have to go around <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. One of the topics that I definitely wanna we both really want to make sure we talked about was your choice to have Molly be a girl and a young girl and be a hero. Mm-hmm. And I'll just throw this out here for me. One of the things that I'm so impressed by with this comic is that she actually looks like a little girl. There are so many artists who do not know how to draw children. It's really ridiculous. <laughs> so 
when I saw this comic, and I was like, yes, that is a little girl. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was uh, quite a relief, but um, and that's one of the things I like about it. I think you could see that and recognize like the ten year old girlness to her. But what, uh, we'd like to hear a little more about your why why you, why that was such an important decision for you in making this comic. Um, it just seemed natural, you know. To to be honest, I think you know, especially I'm you know from the since there's been such a long period between you know her initial creation and the point that I am right now you know i've had a lot of experience working with female characters and you know particularly with uh, supergirl and satana and you know after you know 3 years of working on you know you know draw trying to draw women and trying to draw them respectfully you know i that's yeah. a big thing with me you know it's I you know to 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 steal a line from a from <laughs> from a comedian. I I have spent my entire life swimming in the estrogen ocean. <laughs> so, so I've been surrounded by strong women my entire life, and one of the one of the things that I you know especially with Molly is. You know the the entire idea behind Molly really is leaving something behind for my daughter, and you know something that she can read and she can enjoy. She's five, you know, and she's just starting to get into comics, and you know I want her to be able to read Molly Danger and enjoy it. For what it is, not because you know her dad created it, but it's something that you know she feels is a positive sort of representation of not just female characters, but you know comics in general. You know, there, there's a lot. I it really, honestly, you know, my my taste with with comics has has altered a lot. Over the past few years, there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of just visceral, you know, unnecessary visceral meanness in you know superhero comics, particularly. I mean, somewhere along the line, you know, the powers that be at Marvel and DC decided that it wasn't cool to be a superhero anymore. And it wasn't cool to be the good guy anymore. You know, everything has to be, you know, mired and, you know, dripping with angst and pain. And, you know, I want to get away from that. And it doesn't mean that it's not a serious story because it is a serious story. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to deal with serious subjects. We are going to deal with serious subjects. But at the same time, there's a way to present it that is should be comfortable not just for parents to be able to give to their kids, but something that the parents should be able to enjoy on their own. And as far as, like, making Molly a girl, I mean, honestly, there just wasn't any other thought. 
you know, Molly as a character has has honestly taken a life of her own. You know, there was a point when uh, when I started playing around with, you know, doing the the Kickstarter pitch, I started thinking about changing the costume and making it a little bit more modern, and she stopped me. And and I just sat there looking at the sketch that I had done of this sort of like slick, you know, Brian Hitch-esque kind of ultimate version of the costume and said, no, that's not her. That doesn't look right on her. It looks silly. Yeah. Molly is Molly. Molly Molly dresses like a 10-year-old girl dresses with, you know, sparkles and bangles and big barrettes and a puffy pink jacket and yeah, you know, boosts are too big for her, and she looks she she looks cool, or at least she thinks she looks cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, I definitely see that in how she presents herself too. Have you had a chance to get much feedback on the character and book from other kids? Oh, from other kids, yeah, I've I've gotten a lot of feedback not not directly from the kids, but from their parents. <laughs> <laughs> who have from parents who have given the book to their kids, and the feedback has actually been really, really, really positive. Actually, more positive than than I was hoping that it would be. It, it seems like everybody really has sort of enjoyed the people who've been, who picked up the free comic book day preview. Have really enjoyed what they've seen. That was something yeah, I actually yeah. really, really dug was the, the free comic book day. I was at my shop, and um, I was grabbing my books, and there was uh, little kids next to me, and they didn't know what to get. Like, they grabbed, I think, strawberry shortcake and something else that, you know, they recognized. And I kind of looked right. over, and was like, you know, they only have one, you know, two books, and this was a shop where you can grab as much as you want. And, um, you know, right there was the Molly Danger Princess. And I looked over, and one of the kids was a little girl, and I grabbed a copy for each of them, looked at their mom, and I was like, they need to read this. They will love this. Um, And it just felt really good to be able to have, you know, a a comic with two different stories, so two different series that I could recommend to little kids, feel good about recommending to little kids, and especially a little girl who, you know, there's not really a whole lot of kick-ass comics that, like, are geared towards them. Um, so, I mean, I, I felt great having that on the shelf. Um, and that's not something I would ever think of, like, yeah, this is something that I really, you know, I want on a shelf. But, you know, now that I'm reading it more and more and, and reading Princess and I read Molly Danger, it's like, I want more. I want more of this. This is something that's been missing for far too long. Um, it's very important to the future of comics. We we certainly think. Oh yeah. Well, I I would like to think so too. But I I think one other thing that really honestly needs to be said is girls like characters who kick ass. Yay! They do. They really they really really do. It, it's it's and it's it's funny to me that the larger companies don't seem to realize this. For, for whatever reason, I, I don't know. I, I I have my. I feel like some of them just don't know how to even talk to women. And don't even ask them questions. I mean, their the level of market research that you could do to find these things is so minimal, and there seems to be like almost like a it feels like cooties level of response. But I, I guess right. 
looking at the, I mean, that, that's the feeling that I get when I look at the marketing and the way that they talk to fans. So, yeah. No, I I, so I do. I I agree with you. Um, I think it's it's really sort of sad, actually. You know, one of the one of the 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 things that really bothers me is that my daughter is getting into Wonder Woman as a character. She really likes Wonder Woman, but I can't give her the Wonder Woman comic, and there isn't a a kids version of a Wonder Woman comic, yeah. and you know that. That is the that is really a crime, you know. It, it's, it's it's that the female superhero characters and a lot. It doesn't even really have to be because it, it happens in sci-fi a lot too. Female characters are pushed to the side, you know. They're they're you know there's very few, you know, really strong female characters that have you know would be like. Take sci-fi movies, for an example. You think of a really strong female character, at least to me, the first character that pops in my head is Ellen Ripley. Yep, and the first one I would say. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, and then every other female, like, you know, character in sci-fi or fantasy films or what what have you, you know, are, you know, it's Tomb Raider or uh, Celine from the Underworld movies. They're all dressed up in like skin-tight spandex and yeah. black leather and you know and what have you. And is that really you know even like even if you look at like Star Trek for example, you know the you know, the, the the various Star Trek series. You had Catherine Janeway, who's a very powerful female character, but she's more of a a, matri- a, matri- a matriarch rather than a peer. There's not a lot of, you know, male characters, when male characters are introduced, there's a, l- a lot of emphasis on them being either the guy that you absolutely want to be like, like the total kick-ass guy that you absolutely, you're, you know, in my dreams, this is the guy that I want to be, or he's the buddy, you know? He's you know he's he's the bro he's the buddy and you don't you know male you know you don't really a lot of male viewers don't really respond to you know the patriarchal figure in popular media they don't want to be you know they don't you know they, they don't want to be talked I guess talked down to or whatever you know Obi Wan Kenobi is not cool Luke Skywalker is cool. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean. Yeah, and it's kind of the same yeah. thing. It's the same thing. You know, you don't. It's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, you don't really see. You see a lot of seven and nine cosplay. You don't see a whole, a whole hell of a lot of Catherine Janeway cosplay. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> Especially because in that kind of audience that generally is attracted to geek cultural products, like they don't right. Want the mom authority figure or whatever they want to be the rebel, right? You know, and okay. unfortunately, especially with comics, the the only character, like even like the you know the the character, like let's take Power Girl for for example, Power Girl, and you know before the new Fifty Two was a strong feminist hero who had giant boobs and a skin uh, skippy skin tight costume with a you know cut out 
you know, hole in her, in the chest. But, you know, the the way she was written was more of a feminist character. Now, you know, that sort of really strong, you know, I can do this, I don't need, you know, I don't need you to carry me sort of attitude that she had previously seems to be gone, at least from the, the books that I've seen. We've gone back and forth on that a lot. Yeah? Like where where do you think that, I mean, we talk about that sort of subject a lot on the, sh- on the show. Um, mm-hmm. Like, where do you think that comes from? Like, why don't we see the kick-ass women um, being written regularly and depicted? Because it seems like there's, there's people who want it, um, and there's this very vocal uh, group that wants it. Um, but it just never seems to really come through fruition. And if it does, like at some point, it's like retconned and changed down the road to be yet another cookie cutter female character. Well, I, well, I think a lot of it really is that the the companies see male characters, and particularly male, or not male characters, but male readers, and particularly adult male readers between the ages of, say, 18 and 45 being their primary demographic, and a lot of males are threatened somehow by the concept of a strong female character that isn't draped all over another male character. Interesting. So we're, it's... There's something that we've done, um, and I do regularly on the site, and I break down the demographic, like, fandom of comic book readers using a whole mm-hmm. bunch of data I get from Facebook. Um, and for a while there, you know, we, we I stumbled across something where manga fans under the age of uh, 18 was heavily female, and it is, like, the only instance of that happening that I found. Um, right. Kind of, like, with generic terms, like, to me, it, it's weird in that, that that has such, like, and it was heavy. Like, we're talking, like, 60% fandom of of women. Um, so, clearly, there's, like, a market for it. Right. And I just never saw why no one sit there and is like, you know, there's this niche thing that, you know, we can sell to and clearly has a fan base, and maybe then we can convert them into other stuff. And but, that we can have be the future audience, you know, as, as they grow up and older fans pass on, you know, the next generation of fans. But a lot of it has to do with content as well. You know, American comics are so tied with, you know, the superhero majority, as opposed to manga, which covers so many different genres and styles and influences. You, you know, in manga, even with the stuff that we get over here, you can, you know, you're going to find something that fits your taste. Your, your taste. I can't speak tonight. Your taste. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether it be something like, you know, One Piece. I don't really know that much about, you know, about manga anymore. You know, I, I, the, the, I think the last manga that I read was probably X-1999. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true that they do have a lot of co- topic diversity that you don't necessarily really see represented in Western comics. 
But I also mm-hmm. think that, like, it's not just the topic diversity but also, and genre diversity, but there's also, like, a diversity in the ages of characters and having more female protagonists and stuff. Right. No, I, I would agree with that, too, actually. And we're so it? happy to see this book come out and just have something that clearly has, you know, young women in its sights as, a, as, a, as an audience. Yeah, content. well, I mean, it, it has. I'm I'm trying to get everybody, you know. Sure, I mean, sure. you know the. But the the thing is, I think one of the things that I try to 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 impart on people is that you know, Molly Danger to me isn't really a superhero story; it's a coming of age story. Uh, so and you know that that really that gets clearer as it goes along, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, all it really, it's it's about family. It's about finding your place in the world. It's about you know discovering who you really are. You know, in the face of everything. Yeah. So it's it's really, you know, it means a lot to me. I mean, from from what I read with the the free comic book. Free comic book day story, like I can't wait for it to come out. Um, <laughs> and it's it's some, so something that's, that's interesting is like, how did you get how did you get involved with this with Action Lab? Because um, out of all the publishers, like they're ones that are really trying to, I think, diversify the market. Like you've got Princeless, um, you've got their their Danger Zone books that are coming out, which are more kind of adult mm-hmm. mature stuff. Um, you've got their NFL Rush. Skyward, which is yet another strong female character, it seems like. Um, right. You know, it, it's one of the, you know, out of all the publishers out there, that, like, this really series fits that publisher really, really well, especially what they're doing. Right. Well, I mean, honestly, I, I've been friends with the guys who run Action Labs longer than there's been an Action Lab. <laughs> so... So when they first put together their Kickstarter for Fracture, I contributed to that. I saw the quality of what they were doing, and I said to myself, you know what, I don't want to, you know, I was originally thinking of publishing Molly myself when I first started started investigating Kickstarter. And then I, I there's, basically it was just, I looked at what they were doing. I thought what they were doing was worth it, and I and I felt like I could if there was something that I could do to bring more attention to their company by bringing Molly to Action Lab, then it would be a win for everybody. You know, and being yeah. at Action Lab, being at a company the size of Action Lab, which is you know a fairly small company, you know. I would not have gotten the platform, the free comic book day platform for Molly if I had taken it to another publisher. It just would not have happened the way that I wanted it to. So, you know, it it was just, it it was just, it was never, I never even considered taking it to Image or Dark Horse or anybody. I just, you know, I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to take it to ALE, you know, and I'm going to do it through them, and I'm going to, you know, so here we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it really is a great fit. I mean, that's, 
it's one of the few. You know, we we praise them a lot, but it's one of the few publishers that really one would put out a book like this. But to right. you know, through everything that they're doing is like you can see that they're just like you know, we're gonna make comics that we like, and for maybe audiences that aren't normally catered to, and you know. We're doing it because we love comics and we love what we're doing, and it's very evident for like everyone that I've talked to that that seems to be the attitude and the general process. And it's really, I mean, it's cool to see, and it's just a very positive vibe I get from them. And I don't get that oh, yeah. from many publishers. Um, so I mean, it's it's one of those like I couldn't think of a better matchup between like series and publisher. So it's it's really really cool. Um, so what? are you planning for the series? Like, I, I, I've i got the Kickstarter in front of me and can read off of it, but I figured we'll just ask you as far as, like, what, you, what you're planning for releases and um, right. where you see the series going. Well, it, Molly Danger is basically set up to... The initial story arc is four 48-page hardcover albums. Each album will be 9 by 12 inches, full-color, hardcover, and it'll, the albums will come out once a year because, frankly... Something on this scale takes a long time to write and draw. <laughs> to be completely, to be completely honest, you know, it's, it's, it's this is probably the, the the most detailed work that I've done in a very very long time, and you know, there, there's a lot of I put a lot of pressure on myself anyway as an artist, but you know, I I I have been a an absolute slave driver when it comes. <laughs> to Molly Danger, which is funny since, you know, the only person I'm really beating up on this project is me. <laughs> <laughs> and I Actually, it's a, I, it was a question I've had a, a, a back that I wanted to ask because that kind of fits with it. Um, so you mm-hmm. said the, the goal for the Kickstarter for at 45000 which is a lot of right. money for, like, a first-time Kickstarter. Like, how much... Right. How much did you like put into thought as to what that goal should be in research that you did of uh, you know concerning well, it? Well, I, I priced out the printing. I priced out you know what the what I would have to pay in taxes and fees. I priced out how much you know the the incentives were going to cost to produce and ship, and I basically wrote a budget for everything. And I originally wasn't going to ask for 45000 I was going to ask for less and hope that I got more, but I just thought that I should just, just like with the, the entire campaign, just be upfront about what you need. And I just said, this is what I need. This is the goal that I need to hit. If I don't hit it, you know, my wife and I were already talking about, you know, what plan B would be. So... You know, I mean that was basically that was basically it. You know, I treated it just you know, treat it just like any other business. You set a budget, you figure out what you need and how you know and how much going to cost, and you just I just based it on that. Is there anything that came out afterwards that like you you maybe would have done differently now, or you're like, oh, I didn't think of that when it came to something like your budget for people who are thinking about maybe doing their own. Um, there's there's always work. there's always there, there's always something you know you, you know the big thing that you have to realize is that you know no matter how much money you get you know unless it's like you know even at a million dollars when you're doing when you when you succeed in a Kickstarter and you go over your what you 
are initially asking for, it's not like it's free money. That's the thing because you're actually you actually end up having to produce more than what you than you know what you were going to initially produce. So you have to put out more money. You know you have to, you know there are other things. Shipping has to be paid for. You know. You know, in this case with Molly, you know, I have I'm paying people to ink and color and letter the book. So, you know, I have to pay, you know, pay salaries. You know, there's, there's so many things that need, you know, need to be covered. You know, deposits for the printer, uh, you know, advertising, everything. You know, the, uh, uh, it all comes into play. You know, I've been, you know, even with the with the the forty five thousand that I got from the Kickstarter campaign, you know, I've been working on the book since November and I'm almost finished. And that's you know that's nearly at this point seven months without a lot of outside income coming in. So, you know, I'm Working on this shoestring budget and trying to pay, trying to pay for everything at the same time. So that's, you know, <laughs> and there's always there's always more expenses than you think think you're going to be involved. That's 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 the short answer. Would you for the the I mean, because you said there there's going to be multi volumes, they're going to come out one a year. Are you going to do the right. rest as Kickstarter, or are you going to go a different route with, route with that? Maybe I'm. I'm I'm debating with the book in solicitations uh, in solicitations right now. Just I'm really trying to figure out. I think I may go Kickstarter with book two. I probably won't make a decision until maybe August. Okay. Yeah, I've got some. I've got something else coming up after I finish. A couple of things coming up actually after I finish finish this album. Okay. So you know, while I'm working on that stuff. Um, well, one thing's already been announced. One thing's already been announced. I'm doing a, I'm doing covers and a full issue of GI Joe for IDW. I did see that. I, I'm really digging that. I can't wait for that to come out. Thanks. And then the other thing I can't announce yet because I, I just, you know, sort of verbally signed on to do it, and we're, we're still in the, the planning stages for it. <laughs> Fair enough. So, but I think, um, I think there's probably going to be well, an announcement made around. Hmm? You'll take, you will tell us when it's ready to be told. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so the the other is um, so there was a really good one that I think it was on Facebook like last week. You had a big back and forth with someone about Kickstarter. Um, and oh yeah, creators doing that. And I actually I'm I'm on your side. Like I I think there's like an infinite pot that no one's really taken away from anyone, and it's to be right. used for to use like. Um, I mean, generally, like, what what do you think about the whole crowdfunding uh, aspect of you know the cr- process of creation or whatever you want to call it? I I think I think it's good. I think that you know it's a win win situation for everybody around because if you do it the right way, you know everybody's getting something from it. It's not like I was saying before. You know the con- there's this sort of two misconceptions about Kickstarter or crowdfunding in general. 
One being that you're just giving somebody money willy-nilly to do whatever they want. No, that's not what it's about. You are you are contributing to somebody producing a product. In return, you are re- receiving a a whatever you deem to be an equivalent gift, I guess, in exchange for the money that you're pledging to their product. And at the same time, what you were saying before is that there are some people who are convinced, like this guy that I was arguing with on Facebook, was convinced that you know just because you are a celebrity or have a more public presence that a you're automatically rich enough to do whatever you want which you know I I know actors I've worked with actors before I know that's not the case because you know and using Zach Braff as an example he was complaining that you know Braff shouldn't be on Kickstarter assets for 2 million dollars but Braff has already put in 2 million dollars of his own money before even coming into Kickstarter for his movie and he needs, you know, it's, again, it is the, it's the idea that just, be, I, he was arguing, part of one of the, what he was arguing was this idea that, you know, there should be, that crowdfunding should strictly be for people who can't afford to do it any other way, which I can understand that. I can under, I can understand that from you know I could not do Molly the way that I'm doing it, and Action Lab could certainly not afford to do it the way that I'm doing it had I not gone to Kickstarter. But you know his it, it really didn't have anything to do with Zach Braff. It actually really started from a, a post that he had put on his own blog where he was not complaining about. You know Hollywood stars, but he was complaining about uh, named comic book talent taking opportunities away from young, up, young and upcoming talent from pitching their stuff on Kickstarter and doing crowdfunding because again that idea that there's this there's finite pool of Kickstarter money that everybody throws in at the beginning of every month and when it runs out it runs out oh my god. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, it's definitely, like, it seems to be much more popular for, I, I would say, the, the named creators I've seen more of, and I'm I'm totally for it, because the thing that I've noticed is a lot of the projects that are coming out, you wouldn't see in the publisher. Like, this isn't this isn't usually stuff that publishers would be going for. Um, right. Which... To me, that's what Kickstarter is about: is your stuff that might not get a shot otherwise. Who cares who's doing it? Um, you know that that's what this is for. And I, I, when I was going to handing out awards for you know best of 2012 stuff, I said top publisher was Kickstarter, and I've been generally pretty supportive of it, um, just because the idea to me is it democratizes what's created. You know, you don't have a publisher deciding this is what's getting it made and this what this isn't. It's really the fans who are the ones making that decision. Um and there's tons of books that I've backed that, you know, there's no way in hell they would have gotten back, you know, published or seen the light of day otherwise. So I mean to me it's right. 
it really it democratizes that process. It allows the fans to speak with their their dollars and their wallets and saying this is the type of stuff I want to see, which I could go into a whole other show about how I'm shocked that publishers aren't noticing this and being like, wow, Western comics are really popular on Kickstarter. Maybe we should do some Western comics. Um, right. But, yeah, I mean, sure. no, there are other things that exist. But but at the same time, I just I just yeah, I think it should be said as well. It's just because you you have a name in a particular field doesn't necessarily mean that your crowdfunding project is going to succeed. You know, I I think the, yeah. the 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 perfect example is you know Aaron Magruder wanted to do a live action Uncle Ruckus movie based off of the the, the Boondocks cartoon, and it he didn't make he. Got pretty close, but he didn't make his funding. Yeah, you know? and the same thing with Leah Hernandez when she did her first Garlic's campaign on Kickstarter. It just it didn't do well, so she had to redo the campaign on uh, Indiegogo, and that was a little bit more successful because for her because it was a a uh, she got whatever money was pledged to her. I don't think she got the the amount that she was asking for, but I think she did get a pretty healthy chunk of, of money to work on the project, on the garlics. You know, so it doesn't always succeed. Right. You know, and, and a lot of it is really how you approach it and, you know, how you how you do how you publicize it. And the other is it's I mean it's a public failure. If you're a big name and you don't make it like that potentially oh, yeah. you down the road. So I mean that's you know there is a risk for I would say known people, known entities going out there um, right. and doing these projects. So, I mean, that's you know, there there is more risk than I think people are realizing. You know, if I'm if I'm a publisher and I see someone go out and say, hey, you know, I want five thousand dollars, ten dollars, ten thousand dollars for the series, and they don't raise it, I might be less inclined to hire that person, thinking this person doesn't have the juice necessarily to, you know, push a series down the road. Um, you know, I might right. not be able to run their name. So I, you know. I think well, there is a there's a, yeah. There, there's a there's a lot to it, you know. There's a I you know I was talking I was actually listening to uh, to uh, Brandon Thomas and Brandon Easton's podcast to Brandon's and they had my buddy Joe Illich on it and you know Joe actually donated to my Kickstarter campaign as well but they were they jokingly said that, you know, had my campaign failed, you know, there wasn't going to be able to be a black comic book creator able to do a Kickstarter campaign for at least a year. Well, <laughs> that's not a lot of pressure. No, no pressure at all. <laughs> Although, actually, it does bring me to one of the questions I wanted to ask around, which is just in terms of the question of diversity in comics creators. I know that one of the things that really flipped a lot of us out when we saw the New 52 coming with a lack of diversity in creators and, you know, how even folks who've been around for a long time who had track records, you know, who were people of color and who were, who were female, you know, like were not being brought to write comics. Um, and, you know, I'm always trying to, you know, make it clear that, like, as a comics reader, I think we benefit from having a diversity of voices speaking in the medium. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on on diversity in the industry as, as creators. Well, you know, it 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 really is. It's, it's sad, actually. It really, really is sad. I mean, you know, 
in terms of you know not just I, I think somebody something said recently that there isn't a single black writer or Asian writer actually working at DC right now. Jeez, that's you know, I mean, what is that? You know, and then you know they tried to fire Gale from from Batgirl before yep. that bit, bit them in the ass. So you're going to get rid of the most popular female writer that you have at the company for what reason? You know, because you because you think you could get somebody cheaper. I mean, it, you know, I don't think it's a conscious decision. You know, to be honest, it's not a calculated decision. I think I think that sadly, it's all based on numbers. What they what they think that certain people can move. There are there are actuaries at the companies whose entire job is to figure out, you know, how how many copies of a book a certain creator can move every month. And a lot of those decisions are based on that. You know, and it's it's sad. There should be a much more diverse talent pool than there is. There should be, not just in terms of, you know, race or gender, but there should be a much more diverse talent pool in terms of age as well. You know, somebody like Jerry Ordway should not be should not be having to beg for work from DC Comics. You know, you don't want Jerry as an interior artist, let him do covers. You don't want him to be to work as an artist, he's a writer too. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, to to style yourself so so much creatively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know. I have to say, like, I'm I'm surprised they have actuaries in the sense that I'm surprised that what their actuaries are finding is <laughs> are the things that they seem to be producing because it seems that they seem to be shrink actively looking to shrink their audience to a narrower and narrower subset of people. But um, but they just they just they just canceled four more books. I mean, yep. And nothing, as far as I know, they don't have anything to replace them. Alana, I didn't want to break the news tonight, but your Demon Knights is going bye-bye. Uh, I gave up on Demon Knights a couple issues after Paul Cornell left. The <laughs> new writer was like, just not, the new writer really, really didn't get um, Shining Knight, who's like one of the awesomest transgendered characters in comics history, mm-hmm. and then the story just sort of got weird and boring, and I, I just dropped it after Paul Cornell, so... So I don't blame them for dropping the book, but from a genre diversity standpoint, it is a shame for them to drop one of their true sword and sorcery books, you know, if they want to have different kinds of comics to appeal to different kinds of fans. But yeah, I actually had not heard that. I had not heard that. Um, well, I think you know, it, I, you know, it comes up with an interesting question of like, so you've worked for Marvel, you've worked for DC, you've done the indie stuff. I mean, what... Right. What is the difference to you of, of working for all those? Like, what type of freedoms do you have with one that you can't have with the other? Um, you know, for for those of us who don't know, um, mm-hmm. you know, how how is it working for those different publishers? So I don't want, I don't want you to burn bridges or getting anyone in trouble or anything like that. But I, I've always oh, no, asked no, no, no. of like of like what you know how different is it working for all those publishers and how they handle stuff? Mm-hmm. And oh, do well, any of them have these conversations? 
I'm, I'm sure they do, but I'm usually not privy to them, or I try not to be privy to those conversations. Yeah, you know, um, it, it really depends. I mean, you know, I do a lot of stuff. I do a lot of stuff for you know IDW. You know, they're out on the West Coast, so I don't get to see them that often. But you know, we communicate via email or on the phone or you know online somehow or Facebook or whatever. But in terms of just like the you know the the freedom. You know, I mean, it's it, a lot of what you do working for companies for these companies is brand management. So you you try to give them the best product that you can possibly give them, and try to have as much fun with it as you possibly can. Uh, more often than not, like I, you know, I keep my I keep my head down. You know, I I do my work. I talk to them when I need to talk to them, or ask them questions when I need to ask questions. But you know, and at the same time, you know, they they tend to really not come down on me too heavily in terms of like changes or anything. They're they're usually pretty good, and it, it really depends on the company. You know, it's it, it's. It's different for me now than you know when I was on contract in D.C. because when I was on contract in D.C., I would go up to the offices every week, and I have not set foot in a single office of any company that I've worked for in almost a year and a half. I I only see these people at conventions. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Uh. But I mean, it, it, it's it's cool, you know. It, it's you know, I do my thing, you know. This doesn't really change from company to company, you know. For I don't know. I guess that's the, the best answer that I can give. <laughs> I don't. I, I just the best answer or without starting tons of shit. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, but that's the thing. It's like I don't really, you know, it's like I don't have. It's not like I have like a, a bunch of dirt on people or anything like that. Yeah. It's just it is what it, it is. What it is, you know. I do my job. <laughs> I yeah, do my I job, think, and yeah. <laughs> I've always been more fascinated with the process. Like, you know, what are the type of discussions they had? I mean, we talked to one creator when the new Fifty Two started, not long I think after, and I asked. I was just like, you know, you're writing a series about, you know. Uh, female character, like, did they sit you down at all and say, hey, this is the audience we want to go for, this is kind of the niche that this is filling, um, you know, go for it. He's just like, no, not once. I'm like, really? There was, like, no direction at all being like, this is what we want to do with it, which amazes me that there's no sit-down, broad picture, like, you know, towards the beginning, we were very, we kept on saying, it was like, where's the Gotham Central that can break out from common mm-hmm. readers and, you know, suck in a whole new line of people. Um, and I just, like, I don't, I've never been in these meetings, and I have no idea of these discussions, but I'm just amazed that these don't happen from everyone I've talked to. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, just using DC as an example, like, I don't I don't think I've ever, like, I may have had, like, I I would talk more to, like, the writers that I was working with than, you know, particularly, you know, any of the editors at the companies. Usually they just, you know, I 
I would get the script. I'd do the, the thumbnail layout. I'd get those approved. If they wanted a few changes, they would ask me for changes. But for the most part, they would just let me do whatever I wanted, as long as it didn't. <coughs> excuse me. As long as it didn't, uh, you know, disparage or show the show the character in a bad light, then you know they they gave me the freedom to experiment. Actually, so this is actually a good question because. You know, there's a lot of uproar, you know, as an artist, we don't talk to a lot of artists on the, the show. Um, so there's been a lot of uproar of how various characters are drawn and kind of like mm-hmm. the sexiness of some characters. Like I said, you know, someone brought up and showed Rogue, for example, and she's got her shirt, like, unzippered towards her navel. And, um, right. you know, why, you know, when it comes as an artist, like, how much freedom do you have to do that stuff and how much is, you know, maybe comes from the writer, comes from the company. I mean, is it really just the artist's whim for some of this? Um, well, you or know, does it depend on me, each situation? It, it depends on each situation. For for me, like, for example, when I was working on Supergirl, I made it a conscious effort on my own to sort of tone down the, the rampant sexiness that they had put on the character only because I was uncomfortable drawing a character that young um, in any other way than, you know, as a normal teenager. I mean, that was my approach to Supergirl. Is the, she was a normal teenage girl who just happened to have superpowers. And yeah. her cousin happened to be the greatest superhero on Earth. So, you know, and this, but with Zatanna, I kind of pushed it, not, you know, ex- I wasn't exploitive, you know, I I pushed it a little bit more because her day job is sexy stage magician. So you know, when she was you know in those scenes, I really wanted to play up the the sexiness a little bit more, but not over the top. You know, I'm not the type of guy who will bend a character so that you can see her boobs and her butt at the same time in a shot. You know, that's just that's just not me. Um, so it, it really it really does depend on you know my whim and how i feel something should be approached this yes. answers a question we've had for a long time absolutely <laughs> absolutely um so yeah I mean, we we went way over an hour long and i thought we would um oh so what what can we expect Molly danger hit shelves um, we're shooting for end of July, beginning of August, but there's going to be, they're, they're basically finishing up the book now. There's about 10 pages left and we're going to get it to the printers end of the month. So it'll be out soon. Nice. I, I can't wait. Um, I, I absolutely can't wait. So I, I really appreciate it. I mean, is there anything else you want to plug or, you know, want to plug as to like what social networks you're on and how people can find you? Oh yeah, well, I mean, if, if you're looking for me on Facebook or Twitter or Google Plus, uh, just type in Jamal Eigel and you will find me. And for all anything Molly Danger related, you can either go to mollydanger.com, which will lead you everywhere, including my personal blog and the production blog on the website, which is members only. So, <laughs> if you didn't, if you didn't. Get in touch with me before, but no, I'm kidding. But there's there's 
plenty of stuff out there, you know, plenty of information. If, you know, you can, Molly Danger is also, the Molly Danger Princeless preview is also on Comixology. It's on drive Through Comics. They posted it to Comic Book Resources. They posted it to Newsarama. You know, just type in Molly Danger right. Princeless. Yeah. And, you know, you just, you know, we, we are everywhere. We're We're certainly trying to get everywhere. Cool. We really appreciate you coming on. It's been a great talk, and uh, uh, we covered a hell of a lot in the in the hour and <laughs> twenty minutes. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah and we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, we'll definitely have to do thank this you. again. It was a great talk. Yeah. All right. All right. Great. Thank you. Thanks, sir. No problem. Good night. Yep. Night. All right. Well, that was that answers a lot of questions that we had at one point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, we we ran long. Um, you know, it's late into the night, so um, I think we can we can hold off and we can chat. You know, new releases stuff like that maybe next week or the week after, since we have another guest next week. We're doing a month of awesome guests. Yeah, we really are. We're gonna, I think this is a good opportunity for us to get some more questions answered, and I'm hoping that some of you guys who are listening might uh, drop us a line with some questions you'd like us to ask. Do you want to talk a little bit about our next guest? Next yeah. Week? Um, I'm thinking for next week, maybe we could try like form spring and get some people to, to try to ask questions. Oh, good call. So uh, look for that. We're gonna, I'm going to go and we'll create a form spring account if I don't have one already. I have no idea. Uh, we're going to get that up. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, we're wrapping up another episode of Graphic Policy Radio. So, next week we have another guest, Charles Soleil, who's the writer of Stranger Tractors, which is coming out uh, this week by Arkea. It's an awesome series. Um, really it was cool, digitally, yeah. and it was on Comixology and it's now being collected. Um, you know, beautiful book. It's Arkea. All the stuff they release is, is beautifully put together. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's about New York City and complex systems and math and to say it's unique and, and uh, original is kind of an understatement. And it's uh, about but, New York, which is the most important thing. <laughs> so I, I can't wait for next week because you and him can talk New York and I can just not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's also got uh, Letter 44, which he hinted about on Twitter um, tonight. And I told him that he can, you know, drop some uh, some knowledge and some announcements about that next week. So no pressure on him. Uh, he's also uh, taken over Swamp Thing. He's two issues in on that. He will be taking over Red Lanterns very soon. I think the next issue. And he's also been announced as the writer for Thunderbolt. So this guy has got like every publisher covered, Ooh, which is impressive. Ooh, Thunderbolts again. Jeez. Yeah, I mean he's. Uh, I, I, he seems to have written for like every publisher, so uh, and really cool guy. He's actually one of the first interviews uh, I ever did for the site. Uh, so we might have to drag out the YouTube video and throw that up there as a nice blast from fast. Um, so yeah, so that's next week. Same same bat time, same bat channel, ten o'clock. Um, call in, ask questions. We want to hear from you. Um, also, uh, Alana, I wanted to spring this on you because this is awesome news. Um, I got an announcement late into the day uh, that we are now a featured radio show on Blog Talk Radio. Yay! And this is a permanent thing. That's great. This is a 
permanent thing, yes. And then on top of that, this episode with Jamal is so awesome. Uh, they are actually featuring it all day tomorrow, Tuesday, on Blog Talk Radio. So for all you new listeners, we appreciate it. We can't wait for you to, uh, to check us out. Check out the site, graphicpolicy.com. Come say hi, follow us on Twitter, check us out on Facebook. We want to hear from you. We want to hear questions. Um, you can always call in as well, Mondays at 10 o'clock. So with that all being said, <laughs> uh, so remember... The lesson for this show is that comic heroes come in all shapes and sizes, races and genders. So do yourself a favor. This Wednesday, when you go to your comic shop, when you go check out your digital comics and pick some stuff up, grab some diversity. Grab something that's different. Um, Don't go for the big pecs, spandex, and guns. You're going to be surprised and find something awesome and something you've been missing out on. Uh, Do yourself a favor. So until next week, I'm Brett. And I'm Ilana. So keep on reading and stay geeky, folks.